Please do join me in turning to Ecclesiastes 6. We're going to finish up the last few verses there and then move into chapter 7. Um, As we turn to God's word, let's return to him and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung together, you do move in a mysterious way, your wonders to perform. Father, you are your own interpreter, and you will make it plain. Um, Father, we need your help. We need your help today, not only to understand your word, but we need the Spirit's help to um, know how to put it into practice. So, Father, um, you have said that the secret things belong to you, but what you have revealed belong to us and our children. And so, Father, we thank you for this bit of your written revelation. Give us understanding of your word, give us love for your word, and give us a growing ability to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin by thinking about the word consider. In other words, I want us to consider the word consider. Now, how often do you consider something before you believe it? How long do you consider something, or how often do you consider something before you do it? Well, not only how often, but but how long? How long do you consider something before you believe it, before you accept it as true? How long do you consider something before you do something about it before you take action. Now, the common definition of consider, at least the primary one, um, is to think about carefully, typically before making a decision. To think about carefully before making a decision. And I'm always helped in my understanding by just thinking about some synonyms, some synonyms of consider, to reflect, to deliberate, to contemplate, to ponder, to study, to ruminate to think through, to mull over. Consider has got to be one of the more neglected commands from God's word. I think of Jesus in Luke 12, consider the ravens. You know, when we're anxious and worried, do we do what Jesus says and and look around and how God provides in nature? Uh, Consider the lilies. When we're, 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 we're worried and anxious about, will, will we have enough? Jesus says, consider the lilies. The author to the letter to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I think most of us, and I'm speaking really of me because I know me, uh, I, I skip the word consider. I just, oh, stir up one another to love and good works. Well, here's how I would do it. What do you mean you're not just like me? Consider, take time, think through, pray through, mull over, consider. Well, Ecclesiastes, all 12 chapters, all 222 verses They call us to consider. Consider life under the sun 
And they also call us to consider life above the sun, as it were, over the sun, as God, the living and true God, is brought into the picture. Mostly it's indirect, but occasionally it's direct. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, the preacher, Solomon says this, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. That's what the preacher's been doing, hasn't he? Considering wisdom and madness and folly. Now in our text, I think we will see the call to consider made explicit in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, but also really made implicit. Here we are in Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament wisdom book. We've got the preacher, Solomon. He's helping us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith. To live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a sinful and fallen world, a a world full of sin and misery, frustration and futility, confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes, as we've been seeing, presents the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing, chaotic, frustrating world. The preacher wants us to see, to know that life without God in a word is empty, it's vanity. But life with God is full, it is fulfilling. It's always important to remember the bookends. It helps keep us oriented. The prologue, he starts off, all is vanity. Again, not meaninglessness, but, but it's, it's like mist, it's vapor, it's breath, it's fleeting, it's empty. And the striving after the wind just amplifies that word vanity, trying to grasp the wind in your hands. And at the end, he says again, after all 12 chapters, all is vanity. But he says a few other things too, as we know. He says, hey, in this writing, there are going to be words of pleasure, words of delight. There are going to be words of pain as that shepherd drives the nails in. There are going to be Words that provide perspective. And the biggest takeaway, the biggest perspective is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. And these words will call us to prepare for death and judgment. And we will see that today. We've seen the preacher make observations under the sun. And he sets up the longing that every human has for something new and something that lasts. He sets out on a quest and he says, I've seen everything And I'm a wise man, and yet he is coming to the end of wisdom over and over again. He's coming up empty. He pursues pleasure, a hedonistic life. That is a cul-de-sac. He pursues wisdom, a contemplative life. It's a dead end. He pursues um, toil, work, the active life. And the bridge is out, so to speak. It gets him nowhere he wants to go. We've seen him issue a warning and an invitation. And last week we saw him offer investment counsel. In particular, as you remember, it was over the subject of money, the love of money. It's a sad investment. It cannot ultimately satisfy. It's not only a sad investment, it's a bad investment. It can actually bring you harm and others harm. It cannot, it'll bring harm. But he also lets us know that there is a good and wise investment, and that is to trust God 
to trust God by enjoying his good gifts, enjoying eating food and drink, enjoying toil, even though it's hard and laborious and in one sense it's ultimately unsatisfactory. He says, no, enjoy toil. It's a gift, a good gift from God. Just like last week, it was hard to determine the boundaries of our text but what we're going to look at today is, is what comes after his kind of statement. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind we see in chapter 6, verse 9. And we're going to go all the way until he picks up kind of the first person narrative again, where in chapter, uh, verse 15 of chapter uh, 7, he says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. Now, earlier he had in preceding chapters, he says, I saw, I saw. But, but it was all the way back in chapter uh, 3, verse 18, where he used the word my, where he's actually talking about his life. And again, next week, we'll, we'll see that. Now, our approach to unpack and explore this text will be, first of all, to consider a few questions. Second, to consider a couple of locations. And third, to consider a balanced view of life. So we're going to look at a few questions a couple of locations, and a balanced view of life. First is the call to consider a few questions. Join with me as I read verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will will be after him under the sun? Here's the midpoint of the book. Yeah, the end of chapter 6, but the midpoint is actually... Verse 10, it's, it's a good summary. Uh, man and God have settled characters. God is God, man is man. They cannot be changed. And, and we're reminded here at the first part of verse 10 that, that we are not able to alter the way in which we and the world was made. See, things have already been made and they've been named and they've been known. And then at the end of verse 10 we see these words he is not able to dispute with one stronger than him remember Job the idea of disputing with the almighty fascinated him for a while but then as that book comes to a close what happens to Job he realizes God is God and he is man he repents And God restores him. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament bring up this theme of man disputing with God. We see it in Isaiah, where Isaiah uses that image of clay and the potter. And of course, Paul picks it up in Romans as well. Can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? No, man, God is God and man is man. Verse 11 tells us that this problem that was stated at the beginning, it will not go away 
Look back with me at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He recognizes the problem. He starts off the book with the problem, and here it is still. It's not been solved, and in many ways, it cannot be solved. But look how, in verse 12, chapter 6 ends with a double bewilderment and two questions. There are seemingly no absolute values to live for. In other words, what is good? And there are seemingly no practical uncertainties to plan for. Uh, What will be? And here are the two questions that we're going to be looking at today. Who knows what is good for us? Who knows what is good for us? And that'll be, I believe we'll see at least addressed, if not somewhat answered, in verses 1 through 12. And that second question is, who can tell what will happen to us? And we'll see that addressed, if not somewhat answered, in verses 13 and 14. So we'll see as we move now into chapter 7 that that the author, the preacher, is going to use the Hebrew word for good nine times. And he's going to tell us what is good for us by contrasting it, by, by saying what is better, good, and what is better. And he'll tell us by, by taking us, I believe, to a couple of locations. So after we have been called to consider these couple questions, who knows what is good for us and who can tell what will happen to us? In other words, like, what's good for us here and now, right now, and what's going to happen to us in the future, later? Two supremely important questions. So we move now into verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7. And you'll notice in your Bibles that, wow, it's set up like the book of Proverbs, like the book of Psalms. And indeed, we are going to see proverb after proverb after proverb. We've seen it already in a few sections of Ecclesiastes, and we'll see it again later. But this is the most concentrated uh, place of proverb after proverb. Um, Indeed, proverbs are found not just in Proverbs, but here in Ecclesiastes. And we'll see this stimulating change of style and approach. And instead of kind of marshalling an argument, um, kind of being philosophical, reflecting, he'll bombard us with Proverbs. And there are varied avenues of approach and varied angles of attack to help us maybe see what we wouldn't see at first glance. Now... This year I've been using a a book called um, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life, a year of daily devotions in the book of Proverbs. And on January 1st, I I read this paragraph, um, and I want to read it to all of us because I think it'll help us. What is a proverb? A proverb, Hebrew masal, is a poetic terse, vivid, thought-provoking saying that conveys a world of truth in a few words. Modern people do not have a category for Proverbs. They are neither absolute commands nor promises, and often they are partial. That is, they need to be put beside other Proverbs on the same subject to get the full picture. 
They are observations about how life works. The point of a proverb, then, is to get rightly related to reality through hard thinking and sustained reflection. A proverb is like hard candy. If you bite down on it, you get little out of it and may even get a broken tooth. Instead, you must meditate on it until the sweetness of insight comes. Now, we're only going to have the opportunity for just a few minutes to, as it were, meditate on these Proverbs, but hopefully it'll whet all of our appetites to spend longer time and go deeper. And these Proverbs take us to two locations. First, and the first scene here is a funeral. We are going to go to a funeral. Join with me as I read verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house of fools is in the house of mirth. Have you all heard that before? I mean, what's your first response? You've got to be kidding. A a day of death is better than a day of birth? Going to a funeral home is better than going over to someone's home to see the new baby? At first glance, if if you're like most people, like, what? Are, Are you kidding? But you see, the lessons derived from a funeral are more instructive than the lessons of a birthday party. Festivals have their place But here the preacher is saying funerals have their place as well. Because the day of death has more to teach us than the day of birth. Because at birth the general mood is is excited and expansive. But in the house of mourning, the mood is rather thoughtful, reflective, sorrowful. You're facing the facts. At birth, the future is wide open. At death, life is just, you look back. And it took me a while, but I kept saying, wait a minute, my day of death is better than my day of birth? That's strange. But it's not about you, it's about the other person. Because in terms of a good name is better than precious ointment, The good name comes at the end of life, not at the beginning of life. Because, look at this, this is the end of all mankind, death, the funeral home, and the living will lay it to heart. Solomon, in those words, is saying, this is important. There is a time to be born and a time to die, we read earlier. And he is saying that someone's death is a more instructive time. In fact, death is not only an enemy, but death is also an evangelist. 
When I'm visiting someone in the hospital, especially someone elderly, when, I'm, when they and I are both on the, the same reality that death is coming, it's not going to um, be a long ways off. We, we always go to Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Here Solomon is saying in so many words, because the day of death is better than the day of birth, use that reality, use that fact to assess your life. Be sober about it. Be thoughtful about it. Ask God to make our days purposeful. Because of course, for the death, for the Christian, death is not the exit into some kind of non-existence. Of course, it's the entrance to eternal life. And we'll, we see that, of course, through the New Testament, through Jesus, um, his ministry. But in verse 4, let me read that again. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. That's a, a nice transition um, to this next section. Um, who lives in the house of mourning? The wise. Who lives in the, the house of festivity and gaiety and lightheartedness and um, just jollity? It's, it's the fool. You know, again, the location. We start off at a funeral, but now we're going to move to a fork in the road. Because these next verses, 5 through 12, are like someone coming to a fork in a road. And as I read this, I thought of Psalm 1, which speaks of, you know, the way of the wicked is this way, and the way of the righteous is that way. And here, the fork is the way of the wise is this way, and the way of the fool is that way. So let's pick up in verse 5. For it is better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the, the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning kind of an echo and summary of the first four verses. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here, with the use of, of the wise and the fool, is the choice between two paths, two roads, the walkway of wisdom or the footpath of folly. Wisdom and wise is used seven times, fools four times, and the heart five times. The heart, the place where we think and reflect, it's the place where we decide. Because thoughtful decisions need to be made. On which path are we going to walk? I think it was Yogi Berra in one of his uh, sayings, you know, when you come to a fork in the road, what are you supposed to do? Take it. 
right? When you come to a fork in the road, you, you take it. You don't just stay there. And, and God's word here is going to help us in taking the road, the right word. We, the reader, are being called to listen to the wise, not to the foolish, and to wait wisely, not foolishly. Now, for all the good that is, there is in wisdom, notice there are dangers. There are corruptions to, to, to wisdom. And we see four in verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. So you can be wise, but the difficulty of life, the adversity of life, the, the oppressive nature of life can even turn, as it were, the wise into someone mad, to someone without sense. Not only that is wisdom can be corrupted through impatience. Look at verse 8. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. For those of you reading Table Talk this month, you notice that the theme is pride and humility. And here it's interesting that instead of pride and humility being contrasted, it's patience and pride. Patience and pride. Um, we see in verse 9, bitterness. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Yes, anger, but not anger lodging, taking up root, uh, dwelling. You become bitter. So there's good in wisdom, but dangers. You can still get into bitterness. And then in verse 10, we see the danger of nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? I mean, there are industries built on nostalgia, aren't there? Looking back through rose-colored glasses at the 1950s America, before the 1960s, or the 1640s England, before, you know, something in the 1700s. This idea that, oh, the past is better than the present, we all tend to forget what was difficult in the past and we put on rose-colored glasses and yet here's what Solomon the preacher says, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Because really, what, each day has enough trouble of its own? The past had its trouble, today has its trouble, the future will have its trouble. So if we summarize these both locations, the, the funeral and the fork in the road, I think the, the Sermon on the Mount is instructive. The adult class um, this fall did a study of the Sermon on the Mount, and you may remember that at the beginning with the Beatitudes, one of the Beatitudes Jesus said is, blessed are those who mourn. What did we hear in verses 1 through 4? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, sadness, sadness in particular over your own sin, but sadness here through death, life as it's not supposed to be. So these first four verses, the funeral was not far removed from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and notice that these, this second section, this fork in the road, verses 5 through 12, is not far removed from the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks of a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
but the foolish man built his house on the sand. And I think we all know what Jesus was illustrating. The importance of his word, the importance of listening to his word, the importance of putting his word into practice. So the first question, who knows what is good for us, is addressed, answered in verses 1 through 12. Now this second question, who can tell what will happen to us, is addressed and answered in what we're going to look at next, verses 13 and 14. Who knows what's good for us? Who can tell what will happen to us? Only God knows. We go to him not so much for answers, but for shelter under his sovereignty. So this third call to consider is a call to consider a balanced view of life. Join with me as I read verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So what are we to consider? And this is the direct consider. First of all, the work of God. Consider the work of God. Followed up, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Does that sound familiar? Well, it's an echo of chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. But here, whereas God was not mentioned in chapter 1, here God is on the scene. Because this basic twistedness of life is not fate, but rather it's God-ordained. One commentator says this, The preacher is telling us that whether things seem crooked or straight, we need to see our situation in terms of the sovereignty of God. It's an echo of chapter 1, verse 15, but again, now God is involved. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he, what God, has made crooked? Not a moral crookedness, but just things that are twisting and turning and not a straight line. I think we all think if we do this, that happens. And we all know life doesn't work that way. We do this and nothing happens or something unexpected happens. It's crooked. It's not straight. So we're to consider the work of God, but also we are to consider what? The day of adversity, along with the day of prosperity. Both good times, in other words, and bad times are purposeful. Um, Both are ways for us to glorify God. I mean, what Job said, naked I, I came, naked I'll depart, but the Lord is to be praised. Right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. The Lord is to be praised. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Content. As we've seen a gift from God. Notice that the day of prosperity leads to joy, but the day of adversity leads to a sober realization that life is subjected to vanity. 
as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. And it's almost like Jesus is also saying to his disciples, your sorrow will turn to joy. There is joy, there is sorrow. Accept it. Be realistic about it. Now, what's the the point of the crookedness? And what's the point of the adversity? Well, the point, I believe, is this. To keep us dependent upon God. If everything was straight, if everything was prosperous, would you and I reach out to God? Would we lean on God, rest on Him? Well, maybe if you're more sanctified than I am. But a day of hardness, a day of adversity, a day of crookedness, we tend to have a pretty good motivation to run to the Lord, to find shelter in his sovereignty. So the point of the crookedness is to keep us dependent upon God and interestingly, it's to straighten us out. Right? You and I, excuse me, I, I only know barely my own heart. I want to fix the problem out there because it's painful when the problem in here is being addressed by God, by the Holy Spirit, by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I would much rather fix the circumstance than the core. And you know what? I can't fix either the circumstance or the core. The good news, of course, is that God can and God does. It's any wonder that Martin Luther, and it's the something to think about quote, says this, let us therefore be content with the things that are present and commit ourselves into the hand of God who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. Are you regretting the past? God knows and God's in control. Are you fearful for the future? God knows and God is in control. I would love to claim credit for this, but I read it over the last couple of weeks. And have you ever read something and you have no idea where you read it and you search and search? Somebody said this, that like Moses and the law, here Solomon and wisdom is shutting every door but one. I mean, think about the purpose of the law. Think about Moses to shut us, to to constrict us, to constrain us, to to build in us somewhat despair. Who will deliver us? Because as we sang in um, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Moses and the law shuts up every door but one. Solomon in wisdom shuts up every door but one. What's that door? Faith. 
faith, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Every, again, at times you're reading Ecclesiastes and I feel worse than I did before I read it. Good news. Wisdom won't won't ultimately bring you home. You read the demands of God's law and you like throw up your hands and say, I am undone. Good news. It's pointing you not just to the door, but to the person, the person and work of Jesus. Because my friends, the Bible calls all of us to consider the greatest work of God of all time and to never stop considering it. For the Christian, think about it, the greatest day of adversity in the whole history of the world became, as it were, the greatest day of prosperity. The crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus in our place and on our behalf. A day of adversity unlike any other. The innocent killed, the pure strung up like a criminal. The one who should have received the blessing of God gets the curse of God. What a day of adversity for Jesus and what a day of prosperity for those who trust in him. What does it mean to fear the Lord to rejoice and tremble? What does it mean to fear the Lord to trust him and to tremble? We're living in days of adversity. And thankfully, along the way, there are glimpses of days of prosperity that let us know what lies ahead. And indeed, someone, as we were praying this morning, reminded me that this day is Resurrection Day. We don't have to wait until Easter Sunday. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Day. Joy, prosperity, But you know, the writer to the Hebrews knew a bit about people wanting to turn back, to go back. They were finding it hard and difficult to make it in these days of adversity. And this is what the author wrote beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of what? Of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then here's verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My friends, I'm in your homes. I'm on the phone with you. I'm on text with you, email with you. And I know that many of you are weary Tired, heavy laden, burdened. 
Not only let us hear the call to consider him, but let us all so hear the call of Jesus to come to him and find rest for our souls. For he is gentle and lowly in heart. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there are parts of your word that are more difficult to understand than others, and there are probably parts that still have not been revealed to us. They are the secrets that belong to you. But, oh, Father, in what we have touched upon, especially these Proverbs, would you be pleased to help us to think both joyfully and soberly about life. Help us to be utterly realistic, not afraid to face the facts, knowing that the greatest fact of all time, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension, the promised return, is the overriding fact. Oh, Father, be pleased to find us finding our refuge and our strength in him. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.